those of you who were a little disappointed that I was not continuing in the series in 1 Kings may be heartened this evening to know that I am going to return and on the occasions on Sunday evenings when I am preaching in the absence of Pastor Jeremy I propose to continue until the morning series certainly then is completed and then to press on maybe with 1 Kings and into 2 Kings so Can you turn in your Bibles, please, this evening to 1 Kings and chapter 20? And we're going to read the first 22 verses of this chapter. You will remember that Ahab is the most wicked of the kings who has ever sat upon the throne of Israel. And here in this chapter we read of the coming of the Syrians in the form of Ben-Hadad and 32 kings who come up against Ahab and the capital city of Samaria to make war. What will happen? Well, let's read. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. 32 kings were with him with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. And the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Harad, Tell my lord the king, All that you sent for to your servant the first time, I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Harad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful of each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, Let not the one who puts on his armour boast like the one who takes it off. And it happened when Ben-Harad heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after that he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first and Ben-Harad sent out a patrol and they told him saying men are coming out of Samaria. So he said if they have come out for peace take them alive and if they have come out for war take them alive. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled and Israel pursued them Ben-Harad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came.
came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year the king of Assyria will come up against you. Let's pray. Lord, once again we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. And we pray that as we study them and seek to know your mind and your will and see and consider your grace, we pray that you would move our hearts to praise, to love, to renewed obedience to your word. Lord, we pray, help us now by your spirit we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. The grace of God is the undeserved favour and kindness of God towards us in our sin. And that grace should never cease to astonish us. It is the grace of God that sent his son Jesus Christ into this world. The message of the Bible is that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The message of the Bible is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet we have been justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. As you go through your Bible there are hundreds of examples of God's undeserved favour to us in our sin. And if you are a Christian, then you are one of the thousands who, throughout the history of this world, have been the beneficiaries of God's grace. Nevertheless, having said that, the grace that the God of Israel shows to Ahab is breathtaking. It is really quite astonishing. Here in chapter 20 that grace shines so brightly. It's interesting that Elijah is conspicuous in this chapter by his absence. He doesn't figure in it at all. But God's grace still blazes forth as the noonday sun. These last three chapters of 1 Kings are about Ahab and about his failure as the king and his rejection of God, of his word and sadly of his grace. This chapter is the beginning of the end for Ahab. It is his final opportunity in order to show whether he would obey the word of God and respond to God's grace and goodness. It begins in verse 1 with Ahab and the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, with its capital city in Samaria. They are up against it. Their back is against the wall. Then Hadad, the king of Syria, and 32 kings have come in a coalition led by Ben-Hadad to besiege Samaria. First of all, I want us to look briefly at Ben-Hadad's arrogance, his cockiness. Here in the opening 12 verses of this chapter, he is the king of Syria, with its capital in the north, further north than Samaria, Damascus. His name is a dynastic name, which means that every king had that name. That was the name of the king of, uh, king of Syria. It meant the son of the god Hadad. Here is an idolatrous nation. Anyone with a name like that, anyone with an attitude like that towards the people of God, as it is displayed by Ben-Hadad to Ahab, is causing trouble if he comes face to face with the living God. Ask Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Ask Goliath of Gath how he fared against the living God. 
And despite Ahab's sin and his conduct towards Elijah, Israel nevertheless is still the people of God. They are the ten tribes in this northern part of Palestine. But it is a dark time for these ten tribes. And Ahab is the most wicked king who has ever sat upon the throne of Israel. But look at Ben-Hadad's arrogance. There are three stages in the record here in these opening twelve verses. This man is insolent. This man is proud. This man is arrogant. He is full of himself and full of his power, supposed power and ability. He comes in verses 2 and 3 and says to Ahab, your gold, your silver, your choice wives, your children, they're mine. I'm coming. And you're going to part with them. I'm just going to come. You're weak, you're helpless, you're no way are you going to be able to stand against me. So I'm coming, your gold and silver, your wives, your children, they're mine. Ahab's response is pathetic. He just gives in, just as you say, he says, verse 4. I and all that I have are yours. You say, wait a minute, the man's up against it. I mean, there's Ben-Hadad, there's 32 kings. Wait a minute, this, this is the people of God. Why does he just tamely give way to Ben-Hadad? It's disgraceful, but it's the effects of Ahab's sin. God has left him. God has left him and he has no one to turn to. There's nothing here of the spirit of Joshua, nothing of the spirit of David, nothing of the spirit of Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah. When Sennacherib of Assyria came against Hezekiah and began to mock them and say that they were going to come and destroy them, what did Hezekiah do? He took Sennacherib's note, his letter, and he went into the temple and he poured out his heart to the God of heaven. And what does Ahab do? As you say. Come and take it all. The man is powerless. He's pathetic. Why? Because sin and the guilt of sin leaves a man, a woman, a coward. It knocks all the stuffing out of you. And that's what has happened to Ahab. There's no signs of repentance. He's entirely pragmatic. He has not any options, just as you say. He doesn't really know what to do. He's got nothing else he can do. I don't think Ahab cared for one moment that God gives victory to his people over those who come like Ben-Hadad with their arrogance and their boasting. He has no knowledge no first-hand knowledge of the promises that God gave to, to the people of God, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, and all the true servants of the Lord. As a king, he ought to have been familiar with the words of Moses. He wants to imbibe the word of God as a king. You can find that in Deuteronomy 17, but that has had no impact upon this man, and so he is left without any leg to stand on. Ben-Hadad, getting that message, it's all yours, come and take it, basically. He then cashes in on Ahab's weakness. He grows bolder in his arrogance and his cockiness. Listen to him in verse 6. I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. They will search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. That is a rather polite way of saying, we are going to crush you and we are going to humiliate you. We are going to come and take whatever we like. We're going to do whatever we like with Samaria. We're going to ransack it. We're going to plunder it. Ahab is not happy with that. But what does he do? He calls a council of elders. He doesn't turn to God. He calls a council of men. And they're going to decide with their agree on these terms or not. And the advice is, well, accept the first proposition, but the second, reject it. And then we hear the arrogance 
of Ben Hadad for a third time. And now he's really waxing eloquent in his arrogance. Here is the Syrian king in full flow in verse 10. The gods do so to me and more also. If enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. Now he's calling upon his gods. Now he's swearing by them. And he says he will reduce Samaria to rubble and dust. In fact there won't be enough dust, he says, for my followers just to come along and get a handful. You see the division? He says it's going to be a total wipeout. We're going to destroy you and humiliate you utterly and completely. Then Haran foolishly assumes there's only going to be one winner in this contest. It's him. Which is why he boasts and speaks so arrogantly. Ahab, his response is a kind of a wise crack, I think, in verse 11. He comes back to him and says, Let not the one who puts on his armour boast like the one who takes it off. The war hasn't even really started yet, ben Harat. You haven't put your armour on. Don't assume that you are going to win hands down. Don't be like the man who's finished the war, taking his armour off now because he has conquered it. In our language, don't catch chickens before they're hatched. That's what he's basically saying to him. On what basis does he say that? What grounds has Ahab got for saying such a thing? He's just blustering. It's a war of words. This is a dark day for a disobedient king. Hardened in his heart. It's a gloomy day for the city of Samaria and for the people of God who have been led astray by this wicked man. Baal has been discredited on Mount Carmel and to all intents and purposes Ahab has been unmoved. He went back to the city, he went back to his wicked wife Jezebel and they hounded Elijah and sought to destroy him. What use was Baal now? He doesn't even turn to Baal. And Ben-Hadad says in verse 12, Get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. What do you think God thinks about arrogance? Ben Haddad. He took note. Such arrogance and pride, such cockiness, such boasting, when it is directed against God's own people, even when God is not recognised by so many of those people, that will never ever go unnoticed by the Lord. He takes note of such pride. But then secondly, I want to draw your attention to the astonishing, breathtaking grace of God displayed towards Ahab in particular, verses 13 to 15. No sooner had Ben-Hadad uttered, get ready, than the Lord sends a prophet. Not Elijah, but a prophet, another prophet. And we note in verse 13, suddenly, quite out of the blue, totally unexpected, this prophet arrives in Samaria and comes to Ahab and his palace and he comes and says, Thus says the Lord. And that casts a totally different light on the situation. Up to now we've only been hearing the words of a proud and arrogant king of Syria. And the feeble response of a wicked king Ahab. Now comes the word of the Lord. The God of heaven whom Ahab has despised. Unmoved by the events on Mount Carmel. Unresponsive to Elijah. Not responding to the drought and the famine and the return of the rain and the ministry of God's faithful servant. Suddenly the prophet says, 
Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, the Lord says, I will deliver it into your hand today and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab, you see that great number? You're hopelessly outnumbered. Defeat and death is staring you in the face. And God says, I will deliver you. I will deliver you by my hand. And also note, not only will God deliver Ahab and Samaria, but he says, you shall know, Ahab, that I am the Lord. I am the one who brings judgment on Ben-Hadad in his arrogance. And I am the one who will show grace and kindness to you and to the people who are mine. The deliverance that is about to take place is like a sermon now to Ahab. More than a sermon, it is a divine revelation of God to this man, of grace and of power. There will be no question in Ahab's mind as to who has done it and as to why he has done it. The enemy will be defeated and it will be defeated because God has declared his word. God will act in his saving power such that King Ahab will know that it is the Lord who has done it. And if it is that is the case, then Ahab ought to repent of his sin and adore and praise the God who in grace and mercy has come and saved him and delivered him and the nation from Ben-Hadad's arrogance. Verse 13, when it says, you shall know that I am the Lord, it is you, singular, it is you, Ahab. Later on in verse 28, in the section that we're not dealing with this evening, but when it says there in verse 28, you shall know that I am the Lord, it's, it's the whole nation of Israel, it's plural. But here it is Ahab. This is God's grace to this particular man. This king of Israel. This Ahab. This Ahab who had not called upon the Lord. This, this Ahab who was so weak because of his sin that he could not stand against Ben-Hadad. This is God's astonishing, breathtaking grace. It is something totally undeserved. It is totally unsought. It is a kind and gracious message to a man who has lived so much of his life bearing his fist in the face of God. Defiant and hard-hearted. Why does the Lord intervene like that? grace. That's all we can say. It's God's grace. God desired to be gracious to this man. God was willing to give him yet another opportunity to turn from his sin. This man was more wicked than all his predecessors. He had filled Samaria with his sin, with his idols, with the Baal worship, building temples. He had trivialized the sin of Jeroboam, the building of the golden bulls of Dan and Bethel. Nothing. Of no consequence. But this is grace. It is simply that God desired to show kindness and grace to this man. It ought to leave us wide-eyed and open mouth in astonishment. If you understand the situation, if you understand and appreciate the sin of this man Ahab and what God is saying he will do for him, then you should be flabbergasted. If anyone deserved judgment, Ahab certainly did. Why on earth should the Lord at this particular moment come to his aid and rescue him? And to do so at the precise 
moment when Ben-Hadad says, get ready. Suddenly, the prophet appears. A few hours delay would have been too late. A few hours earlier, the significance of it would not have been grasped in the same way. It is the very hour, the very moment, when the king of Syria has said, we're going into Samaria. That the Lord says, Ahab, you see this great multitude? I will deliver them into your hand. And you will know that I am the Lord. God will judge Ben-Hadad for his arrogance and pride. And he will spare Ahab and his people. Why? Simply because God wishes to display his grace. It is his prerogative to display that grace. It is totally undeserved. And now thirdly, let us see as we complete the story down to verse 22, how that same grace overthrows Ben-Hadad and delivers Samaria. It is noteworthy in verse 14 that Ahab does not seem to express any thanksgiving, any astonishment. There does not seem to be any signs of repentance. Immediately his question is, how? How is it going to happen? And the Lord does not rebuke him. An answer is given. And Ahab seizes the opportunity once it has been given. The prophet says, thus says the Lord. By the young leaders of the provinces. And then he said, who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you Ahab. The means are appointed. Ahab is going to be a recipient of the grace of God. And God is going to use these 232 young men in order to deliver them from the hand of Syria. And for once in his life, Ahab obeys the command of God. And yet at the same time, we feel a little uneasy about that obedience. There seems to be a certain shallowness about it. Surely, if the grace of God is being shown to him, surely that ought to move his heart to some measure of sorrow for his sin and to realize the goodness of God, but there's no indication of that. This man seems to be grabbing the opportunity for victory that has just been placed before him. So he gathers the forces, the 232 men, the young men, the 7,000 troops, and they head out at noon. And what do they find? Well, before they get there, they find that Ben-Hadad has been already toasting victory. He's been drinking at the command post with the other 32 kings in coalition with him. They're getting drunk. They're in no state to fight. They don't think they're going to need a fight. This is going to be a walkover. So they're already toasting victory. And being informed that 232 men have come out of Samaria, he sends what seems to be rather strange orders. In verse 18, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. Maybe the drink is beginning to affect his judgment. It's not clear at this point. But then in verse 20, led by these 232 young men, the rout of the Syrians is on, and a great slaughter follows. No doubt, as Ben-Hadad flees, escaping on a horse with others in the cavalry, he is sobered up. His clouded vision did not allow him to stop fleeing for his life, leaving his troops to perish at the hands of the Israelites. Against the Lord, Ben-Hadad is a defeated man. God resists the proud. And for all his boasting, he flees. And he flees empty-handed. Not so much as one gold coin in his pocket. handfuls of dust the only dust you can see is the dust from the hooves from his horses as he runs for his life God in his grace 
came to the aid of Ahab and the nation of Israel in the capital city of Samaria and overthrew Ben-Hadad and his entire force and sent him fleeing for his life. God in his grace did for Ahab what Ahab ought to have done as a true king of Israel. Ahab ought to have been calling upon God. Ahab ought to have been like David as he went out to face Goliath of Gath. Ahab ought to have been like Joshua, a man who imbibed the word of God. Ahab ought to have been a man like Hezekiah, who when he was threatened, poured out his heart unto God, but he was none of those things. And yet God in his grace did those very things for him that he ought to have done himself. Calling upon God. God in his grace to Ahab. God in his grace to Samaria. God in his grace to Israel, his own people. But notice, there's one other thing in verse 22. That's not the end of the matter. We're only halfway through what happened to Ahab and the, and the Syrians. After the battle, the prophet returns and says to him, Go, strengthen yourself, take note and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Assyria will come up against you. Here is a vital piece of military intelligence. An advance notice. It's not over. You're going to face the same kind of situation in a few months' time. Be ready. Be vigilant. Ahab, effectively God is saying, you have seen what I have done to Ben-Hadad. I have protected you. I have come to your aid. I have delivered you. I have been gracious to you when you did not deserve it. It's a call effectively for Ahab to repent of his sin. A call to him to recognize the judgment of God that has fallen upon Ben-Hadad and the grace of God that has come to him personally and to the nation of Israel as God has defeated their enemies. God, you see, will not let Ahab just forget about it now and come to some other kind of explanation and interpretation about what happened. He will not let him forget. He has said, you shall know that I am the Lord. And the Lord is taking him, as it were now, by the scruff of the neck and saying to him, Ahab, have you learned the lesson that I have been teaching you in my grace? Are you going to repent of your sins? Are you going to call upon me? And are you going to see me deliver you from the hand of Ben-Hadad when he comes again in the springtime? What are you going to do? Have you learned from what I have done in my grace? Will you act with the kind of zeal and faith that characterized David? Will you be a true king, a true shepherd to my people, Israel? You see what the Lord is doing? He's giving this man a further opportunity. Even though he has provoked God to anger more than any other king, God is extending his grace and his mercy to this man, Ahab. And saying, Ahab, here is a further opportunity for you. To respond to my grace. The rest of the chapter tells us how Ahab responds to that. That is the subject of another sermon. I want to draw out just three lessons from these 22 verses of 1 Kings chapter 20. We see this passage is about God's grace. And about God's judgments. It is a revelation of God. The main events in this chapter are not about Ahab and Ben-Hadad. It is about God. This is God. You see his judgment on Ben-Hadad. On his pride, on his arrogance, on his boasting, on his cockiness. He rides away empty-handed, defeated, despite all his boasting words. 
Surely, the lesson here is a warning, first of all. A warning to anyone who thinks that they can stand up against God while they are still in their sin. You cannot do it. It is totally impossible. It is the height of folly to try and resist God. Especially while you are in your sin. He is more powerful. He will outmaneuver you and he will judge you for your sin. At the same time, that warning is also a comfort to the Church of Jesus Christ. For the wicked will not prosper in the end. God will always bring the proud to account sooner or later. They shall not prosper against the Church of Christ. And that includes those who are responsible for making men and women martyrs, those who persecute and shed the blood of the saints of God in their arrogance and in their pride, they shall not prosper. They shall be brought to judgment, just as Ben-Hadad had been brought to judgment. But then there is a second lesson. Because here we see the grace of God that comes to Ahab in his sin and despite his sin. These are some of Ahab's best moments as a king, but they do not last, as we will see. But I want to draw your attention here, not so much to God's judgment now, but to God's grace. Because God's grace is strange. It is strange in a number of ways. It is strange because it is patient in the extreme how much has God's anger been provoked by this man's actions and yet God is patient this man is still king and God is gracious to this man we see other examples don't we in the Bible of God's patience how many years did Noah preach a hundred and twenty How many people repented of their sin before the flood? You could count them on two hands. Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives. The rest perished. But God was long-suffering. God was patient. You see it in the life of Manasseh. Manasseh was 55 years king in Judah. And it was 50 odd years of wickedness. Now Manasseh was different to Ahab in that he was taken away captive, led with a hook in his nose off to Babylon. And in Babylon he cried out unto the Lord and repented of his sin and was restored. But God was patient with that man. God did not immediately visit him with judgment. He was patient. And he was patient with Ahab. But God's grace is strange not only because of his unusual patience. But it is strange, and we have a clear instance of it here. Because it is freely given. And it is unsought and unsolicited. Ahab doesn't lift so much an eye to heaven to seek the help of God. And yet God comes to his aid. No one asked the Lord to intervene. If Ahab had been defeated, he would have deserved it. But you see, grace is sovereign. Grace is God's prerogative. It's his to do as he pleases. He was the one who took all the initiatives. And even though it was unasked and unsought for, he came and displayed it. There are other ways in which the grace of God is strange. But I've given you just two ways. His patience and the fact that it is unsought. You see, that is very comforting and encouraging to sinners like you and me. We are never worthy. We are never deserving. 
even if we've been a Christian 30, 40, 50 years, do we deserve the grace of God? Do our good works somehow earn us favour and good standing with God? My Bible tells me, and I trust each of you are persuaded in your own mind and in your own heart, and you are daily thankful. I am as much dependent upon the grace of God for my salvation tonight as I was as a 15-year-old teenage boy who first came to faith in Christ. And I'm now in my 60s. The grace of God. God gives freely. God gives liberally. He is ready. He is willing to be gracious and to forgive. Willing to show his kindness. Willing to show his love. And if God is like that toward us, ought we not to imitate him in our attitude towards others? Are there people that you know and you think, oh, no hope. No hope. You write them off. That is not Christian grace. That is Phariseeism. Phariseeism. It was the Pharisees who said that sinners, harlots, tax collectors, finished. No hopers. God was gracious to Ahab. Notwithstanding the fact that he did not repent, it does not alter the fact that God was willing to show grace to that man. And if we claim to be those who speak in the name of Christ, then we must show the same kind of grace to those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. We dare not write anybody off that is ungodlike, that is unchristlike. It is not Christian grace. And then thirdly, the third lesson. Ahab is accountable for the grace that he has received. You and I are accountable for the grace that we have received from God. Guilt had crippled that man. Sin had driven out the fear of God. He trivialized sin. He did not trust in God. He hated Elijah. It seemed, although the scripture does not say it, it seemed that he was hardening his heart. Unmoved. Unaffected. But the grace of God came to him while he was in a helpless state and condition. The riches of God's goodness, his patience, his long-suffering. And Paul says in the Romans that that kind of conduct by God, God's goodness, is meant to lead us to repentance. Did not lead Ahab to repentance. The grace of God did not seem to profit him. He cuts a sad figure in chapters 21 and 22. But it forces us to examine ourselves and say, how do I, how am I treating the grace of God that has been freely lavished upon me? How do I respond to the word of God? How do I respond to the continued kindness and love of God? How do I handle a testing situation? What do I do in a crisis when there does not seem to be much hope? What is my response? Sin rendered Ahab a coward. He was silent before God and sought the advice of men. That's all he did. Resorting to the wisdom of men. It was not with him as it was with David. As it ought to be with us. When I am afraid, I will trust in you says David in Psalm 56. Ahab could not do that. He did not know God. And even when God was gracious to him, he did not know how to handle this grace and did not handle it rightly, did not humble himself. But you see, 
He was responsible. He was accountable. You and I are accountable for the grace that we have received. When God saved you from your sins, when grace found you, what condition were you in? You were in sin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God made you alive. You were dead. And if God were to remove his grace from you, he will not. He cannot. But if he were, you would be dead. Back dead in your trespasses and in your sins. But you see, you are accountable. God has been very kind and continues to be kind day after day. What you are now, you are now by the grace of God. What you will be in the day when Jesus Christ appears and you stand before him in his righteousness, you are by the grace of God. Your salvation is always by grace. Never anything else but grace. You look at Ahab, this man was very ready to accept God's promise. It was a way out of the hole that he had dug for himself. He was eager to know how the victory would be his. But he did not seem eager to repent of his sin. And his response is suspect and we will have that suspicion confirmed in the following sections of scripture. He's still the pragmatist. He's content to use the promise of God in order to save his own bacon, to save his own skin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you who have received the grace of Christ, we are to be genuine, we are to be sincere in our hearts and learn to really appreciate the grace that we constantly receive. Ahab put his hand out and stopped that grace by refusing to repent of his sins. He refused to acknowledge his faults. He refused to ask God for forgiveness. And that is the abuse of grace. It is right for us, it is better for us to learn constantly, to receive God's word, to heed all of the teaching, to heed the goodness of God and to examine ourselves and not take the grace of God for granted. It is all too easy when the word of God comes to us and says, well that applies to so and so there and so and so there and to miss the point that God is speaking to you, to me and saying, no, I'm speaking to you. Not to anybody else, but to you. That's what he did with Ahab. He didn't come with a general word. He spoke to Ahab specifically. Sometimes we treat a sermon, and I'm including myself here. Sometimes we treat a sermon as if it's a bunch of hot air. Why? Because we don't like really what is being said. Because it's getting right into the nooks and crannies of our heart and searching us out. But we are accountable. One day we must appear before Christ and give an account for all that we have heard and whether we've taken it to heart. Whether we've been hearers and whether we've been doers of the word. It's sincerity. It's genuineness that Christ is looking for. We will never be perfect in this life. But what God wants of us is a broken spirit, a contrite heart, one that is responsive to him, one that desires to hear his voice and to run in the way of his commandments. And where we find that, that is not the case, to sincerely repent of our sin and turn to Jesus Christ, to be washed clean from our sin and to walk in the ways of righteousness and truth. Ahab never did that. And for that reason, he cuts a sad figure. Because he falls under the judgment of God. He did not appreciate what God in his grace was doing and had done for him on that day when he defeated Ben-Hadad.
God forbid that we presume upon that grace. That grace is astonishing. That grace is amazing. That grace of God is breathtaking. We never deserve it. But God says, I have been gracious to you. And we are accountable for how we respond to God's kindness and God's love. It must be a very hard heart that says no to God. God forbid that we should ever say so. May he break our hearts and make us sensitive and soft and malleable when he comes to deal with us in grace, in mercy and in love. Amen. O Lord our God, we would magnify the grace that has been so freely lavished upon us and pray that we may not become like Ahab who refused to humble himself refused to heed the word of God refused that grace and turned away in his own sin and hardened himself Lord we pray that you would give us hearts that are sensitive to sin and above all sensitive to your grace so freely displayed in your Son Jesus Christ who has come and has given us the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we confess with the hymn writer our sins reached up to heaven. But Lord, you have come from heaven and rescued us from the depths of our depravity and from our guilt and from our uncleanness and our impurity and our bondage. And Lord, we pray then that we may evermore respond to that grace with new love, with new obedience, a new desire to become more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from our sin. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Amen.